Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. My guest today is Lindsay Cook, visiting assistant professor of art here at Vassar College, where she also earned her BA in art history and French. Lindsay is talking with us today about an essay that appeared earlier this year in the collection entitled Modernism and American Mid-20th Century Sacred Architecture, edited by Anna Geva. The article itself is entitled Religious Freedom and Architectural Ambition at Vassar College, 1945 to 1954. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. Great to have you on the show here. This is an article about a building that wasn't actually built, which is more common than you think. A lot of buildings don't actually get built. A lot of effort, though, went into the planning for this. And it's about a college chapel that was planned here for Vassar College. Yes. So in 1926, Vassar eliminated its mandatory chapel program. And Uh this may come as some shock to current students Uh that there was once mandatory chapel at Vassar. Uh But indeed there was. And so from the time the college chapel was built in the early 20th century until until 1926, every student had to attend daily services. And this was also a moment for the community to come together, to join Uh together. And so to take this away also transformed the community to a certain extent. It became, in some cases, more dispersed. Uh Uh, So you no longer had to come together as a whole group. What this also meant, of course, was that attendance waned at chapel. Well, of course, chapel continued to occur daily. And this led to abysmal attendance in the very large chapel, Uh which, of course, appeared to outsiders and also to insiders as if this was a moral scourge on the campus culture. When, in fact, of course, people were seeking religious spiritual guidance elsewhere. They might have even been attending church and other religious services out in the Poughkeepsie community as opposed to on campus itself. So there was a desire to address this concern and to have a smaller space that would accommodate this kind of community. The original standing chapel was quite large. I mean, it, can, it, it almost still holds the whole community. It really does. And, and on days where we do all come together, like convocation uh-huh. and, and those kinds of ceremonies, you do see the sense that you might have gotten a daily chapel in the teens and 20s. So your essay is, to some extent, it's about the building, but it's also about religious life at Vassar and maybe at other academic campuses across the country, right? It is. And so there were a couple of different initiatives that took root at Vassar in the post-war period and Uh one of those was called Community Church Uh and this was an organization that came together, you would all practice together Uh and you could then believe whatever you wanted to believe essentially but it was still a communal coming together of all people of all different faiths was the idea and that organization gave way to another one called the CRA and that Uh was more of a collective that brought together different discrete sectarian interest groups Uh sort of like we have clubs today So there are many different kinds of clubs, but they might all be under a certain umbrella, or there might be different clubs that have similar affinities and and do join together on certain occasions. So that was more of an umbrella organization. And it was in the context of that group that the new chapel was designed and then never ultimately realized. And then on other campuses, this notion of a common service for the whole campus wasn't unusual to start with, was it? We seem to have gone along with a kind of national trend in a way. It's true. It's absolutely fitted in with what was going on elsewhere, and especially in the kind of nuclear age of of needing to come together. Otherwise, what would the apocalypse? I mean, people were facing the end of the world Uh, on a a regular basis. So you mentioned the war. We're talking about World War II because the project was done after the war. But the original change in mandatory chapel Mm -hmm. occurred well before the war. Yes, absolutely. After the first war. 
World there War II. There was a chaplain at Vassar after World War II who was really the driving force behind this, William Kirkland. Uh -huh. And so that's largely, I think, uh -huh. the real push occurred at that moment. And it also coincided with Sarah Gibson Blanding's presidency, and she uh -huh. was very committed to these kinds of issues uh -huh. as well. So can you talk about then about the history of the chapel itself on campus? There used to be one, as there was with the library, it used to be all contained in the main building on exactly. campus. Yeah, so, so the main building was a large building that basically contained the whole college when Matthew Vassar built the college. Right. There were other buildings like the observatory mm -hmm. and Avery that were built about right. the same time. And Avery Hall is, in fact, that's where Le Corbusier visited. That's where uh, he gave oh, his lecture oh, in the uh -huh. 1930s. So there, of course, there were certain buildings on campus, but I think for current students, it's very hard to imagine what the campus looked like at the time when it was really centralized and focused yeah. on main building itself. Yeah, I found it interesting that you start off the article with that Corbusier lecture, yes. which is an iconic of moment course, at Vassar, yes. in Vassar's architectural history, mm -hmm. at least, uh, in that you know it involves us in the history of architecture per se in an interesting way. That's an interesting moment, isn't it? Can you talk about it? It a bit? absolutely yeah. is, and this is exactly the time what he witnesses there are students putting on plays and dressing uh -huh. the sets for particular plays, and he yeah. is clearly looking oh. at their bodies and appreciating this very much at that time in the 30s. Yeah. Well, uh, athletics was really important absolutely. in the curriculum, wasn't um, it? Definitely so. in the athletic circle itself. Now we think of it as noise circle, yeah. but having a space really for women to to exercise their bodies in addition to their minds was extremely important. Uh -huh. But we're talking about that very moment just after mandatory chapel has been eliminated. Yeah, uh -huh. And so you have a real sort of freedom of expression. The women here were doing what they wanted to do, uh -huh. for lack of a better term. Many of them might have been taking religion classes rather yeah. than yeah. or been more involved or enthralled by their religion classes than by going to church. Yeah. And this is something that was hard for, I think, the sort of outside world to appreciate and value that that might have its own sort of humanistic value. Yeah, itself. especially Corbusier coming from France. France, he yes. had this he had this model um, building type almost of a convent mm -hmm. uh, when he arrived right yes. I mean, he did compare the place a bit to a convent. He did, and the women to, here yeah. to nuns, which if you know anything about what they were doing at the time, didn't, yeah. quite, um, didn't yeah. quite fit in. And so this is part of the framing, is to consider the, the college as convent, which uh, is, I certainly yeah. use this image in my uh, lectures on monasticism yeah, and my uh -huh. discussion of monasticism. Uh, Students find it very hard to believe at first yeah. that monks and nuns got up in the middle of the night yeah. to praise God, to sing the psalms. Yeah, yeah. But they have very little difficulty understanding that they get up at the crack yeah, of dawn on. in order to do their own yeah, reading. Or pull all-nighters. Exactly, yeah, or yeah, pull so, all-nighters. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. there is, finally, that is a, a great sort of way yeah. to, to come around and, and recognize that there are some parallels to yeah. that environment. Yeah. And Corbusier writes up in When Cathedrals Were White his recollection of his visit to yes. Vassar. I mean, it was a visit to other colleges also. Mm -hmm. And the thing that stands out in that for everyone is after the lecture, he's treated like a rock star. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. And also the fact that he was able to fill Avery Hall. This yes, is at, a very, yeah. at the very moment when voluntary chapel would have been nearly empty. Yeah, yeah. So that the pews uh -huh. in the chapel would have been empty, but he is able to fill up Avery yeah, Hall. Yeah. Um, so so that's the kind of person who's drawing their So their basically almost every student on campus comes to see exactly. him. They all know he is a kind of Based cultural Based on the numbers, it really does yes, look yeah. like a, a majority yeah. of the campus went. Whereas if he were just doing a public speaking tour, mm -hmm. he may have got a few architectural aficionados in New York. Sure, Los it depends on where he was lecturing. But, but, in the 30s, yeah. it's true that yeah. this wouldn't have been the... Yeah. He wouldn't have been the powerhouse that, that he is today. Yeah, but students were interested in, uh, in architecture and uh, culture. Yes. So, yeah.
Interesting. And then there's the story of them rushing the stage and ripping up ripping the drawings. Ripping up his drawings. <laughs> and so we do have many wonderful drawings that survive from his lecture oh, tour oh, at, uh -huh. at Princeton, at uh -huh. Columbia, oh, okay. other places that he visited. But not at Vassar. But not they, they ripped his up. They wanted him to autograph the Exactly. The, the so the idea was yeah, that yeah. they came down like confetti and yeah. each, uh, each student came up to him <laughs> wanting to get a signature. Yeah, and uh -huh. yes, it does have, I mean, we think of sort of Beatlemania or yeah, something exactly, along Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so funny. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, then Corbusier brings in the idea of modernism, which is very big on campus at, at yes. the time, right? I mean, it's being touted as a way of looking at the world and looking at culture, isn't it? And we're a kind of, you know, I'm thinking Marges Bacon's book on the art library, which was built in 37, but mm -hmm. we're even but well before that, after the Armory Show in New York, which what, is what, 1913? Uh, well, you know, we're a sort of conduit into the rest of the nation for modernism, aren't mm -hmm. we? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think this is true to see it as a philosophy, as an ideology, on uh -huh. top of just an architectural style. Uh -huh. And I found that too in the post-World War II example that I studied in this article, that that's how modernism was seen at that time as well. It was uh -huh. not just, it was more than a style, style or, and, yeah, and yeah. St or that style meant a lot more than we might take it to mean today. Yeah, it was uh -huh. not an arbitrary decision to consider a modernist chapel at oh, that time, uh, much in the same way it wasn't just an accident to consider a modernist art library uh -huh. at that time. So well. design is something more than aesthetics. Much uh, more yeah, than just yeah. the way it looks. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So in terms of religion on campus, the uh, chapel is non-denominational right from the beginning, isn't it? All the way right. back into the 19th century. Yes, and so it's served all, all of these different functions, even yeah. if it looks for all the world like a Romanesque yeah. church, uh, especially from the outside. Although Matthew Vassar was interested in religion and in that he contracted with a Baptist minister, mm -hmm. Elias Magoon, to, yes. for the collection, for the right. art collection and the you know, book and collection. And the sort of core of the Loeb collection yeah. does, of course, relate to that collection. Yeah. So what role does religion actually have in the early life of the campus? Do you have like, a sense of that? Or... Well, I think it was just a given is what I, I, I really did get that sense. And there was also an assumption of a more, while you might be a different stripe of Protestant, it actually was still very un, unusual to be Jewish or to be yeah, Catholic. Yeah. And so you do see a, a shift in this in the 20th century yeah. in just the demographics, the composition of the college overall. That's a major shift that occurs and that there needs to be some accommodation in the architectural life and the religious life at the yeah, same time yeah. later on. So is there a civil notion of uh, religious freedom at work here, do you think, possibly? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's also what this article addresses, yeah, too, is, uh -huh. is that notion and its expression visually architecturally. Uh -huh. So we're ecumenical right from the beginning, yes. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the 1860s yes, starting no, off. So, exactly. yeah, so it's quite a history, really. So what role did students have in shaping the future of religious religious observance on campus, but generally, I mean, they took part in the decision-making processes here, didn't they? They really yeah. did, yeah. and I think that's what really sticks out to me, is how much power they ultimately had uh -huh. in some of these decisions. So yeah. first of all, it was student protests that led to the elimination of mandatory chapel. Uh -huh. So that's one way in which they were crucial in that development. On the other hand, you also have, as President Blanding and William Kirkland, the chaplain, and the architects involved in the early 1950s chapel project, as those plans developed, mm -hmm. the students express, particularly in op-eds in the MISC, they are expressing their uh, disapproval, their mm -hmm. criticism of why do we need to spend money on this of all things on campus. They did uh -huh. not see a new smaller chapel as the greatest need on yeah, campus uh, at that time. Very interesting. So students actually are possibly having some effect on the building program on campus. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so as much as there is a trustee committee, a, a committee of trustees, the Buildings and Grounds Committee, which is charged with making these kinds of decisions, and also, of course, subsidizing the plans yeah, that are uh -huh, drawn up yeah. at various points. 
the students and their criticism did ultimately, I really think that put the kibosh on the oh, whole oh, on the whole pro- project oh, in the oh, end. Very interesting. Um, there so wasn't enough. They would have needed the goodwill of the students uh, to, to see this. Uh, good. So uh, that, that's a good, a good thing to keep good in thing mind. To know. So it's yes. not all top down. No. So yeah, because it does mean better decision making. Because there were decisions that were made along the way here, and they all seem to have worked out for the best. I think. Uh, yes. Both in terms of campus life, but in terms of campus architecture and, and the landscape plan. So yeah. You talk in the article about the way religion is entwined with national political ideologies and how it's used here in the question of religion on campus. And I'm thinking here of uh, conservative demagogues like Buckley, Mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, using religion as a wedge to bolster their own political ideologies. And um, Mary McCarthy comes into this ambassador girl. So can you talk about this just a bit? Because it's an interesting history. Yes, and I think this is also very personal. I think William Buckley uses Vassar as an example, partially because he had family connections to Vassar through Uh his sister. Oh, I see, yeah. And this came back again and again, where you might find a name appearing in this issue of academic freedom, religious freedom in this period, and you wonder why did Vassar come into this at all, Uh and you then realize it's someone's sister, someone's wife, and because the name sometimes gets lost, you don't always recognize the connection right off the bat. Buckley did also write about Yale, of course. Buckley famously wrote about Yale, Yale, and in a footnote though, he lodges a a complaint against Vassar specifically, and uses Mary McCarthy as an example, as if she is the exemplar of all Vassar women. Well, what Mary McCarthy's own article, The Vassar Girl, from Uh Holiday Magazine suggests is that actually she was unusual at Vassar and that she was particularly progressive herself and she felt that way. I mean, she she felt, if anything, that Vassar was deeply conservative well, well, um, relative you, to her You mentioned point. when we were talking about ecumenicalism, the role of Jews and Catholics, and yes. Mary McCarthy was a Catholic. I mean, yes, she has a book, Memories right. of a Catholic Girlhood, you know. So that had to play into her Certainly perception that, of what the school was like. And, which I think today gets a little bit erased as we see this yeah. all as, as Christianity, but yeah. in fact at the time these would have been major distinctions uh-huh. that she would have felt on campus, being Catholic as opposed to being Protestant. Yeah. So did she fire back? I mean, was there an exchange between her and Buckley or public exchange? As far exchange? as I know, yeah. in that in that particular instance, it is a footnote in Gotten Man at Yale, and and I'm sure she had problems with Buckley for many (laughs) other reasons. Yeah, other reasons, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. You have talked about how the religious community evolved. There were these various groups, and it becomes more and more ecumenical, and then it breaks down a bit, too, so mm-hmm. that it's not a centralized kind of... Uh, it's not at thing, all centralized, yeah. so that there is an organization, CRA, that brings yeah. them all together. This is in the early 50s, is yeah. the situation you have, but the Quaker group is in this. There are various stripes of Protestantism yeah. under that heading, and each one is also relatively small, especially the small college, such as this one, but they do come together in spirit at the very least, but uh-huh. I, I didn't get the sense from the research I did on that end of things that they were really coming together all that much, uh-huh. which was a real shift from the previous decade, let's uh-huh. say, when the whole idea was that anyone who had any spiritual, religious expressions, inclinations, would have come together. Yeah, But we always did have a chaplain, yes. and we still do yes. with Sam Spears. Absolutely. So, yeah. so in- interesting, who must have weighed in administratively. Certainly, and would have been at the head of whichever of these organizations yeah. was in oh, oh, charge see. at yeah. the time, so uh-huh. community church or CRA, yeah. exactly. So, in terms of a new building, what was wrong with the old building, the old chapel? Mostly, I mean, it was, it was too big, it right? It was yeah. much too big, and that was the main concern. But also, there were maintenance issues, deferred uh-huh. maintenance, as yeah. we all know, is one of the main drivers of new construction. And so, there was a leaky roof. There were all kinds oh. of difficulties with the existing yeah. structure. And the decision also needed to be made 
whether to preserve that chapel. So I really oh. do think it would have been a real question had this smaller chapel, the new smaller chapel, been constructed in the 1950s. I think it is possible that the old historicist chapel that we all still know yeah. might have been torn it's down true. or at least would yeah. have been retrofitted beyond recognition. Yeah, that would have been tra tragic different. because it it's an incredible yes, structure, absolutely. historical structure, a Romanesque uh, chapel, one absolutely. of the most beautiful buildings on campus, certainly. Yeah, so. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> the medievalist comes out, but yes, yeah, I, exactly, I agree. Yeah. That said, I'm, I'm a bit of a closet modernist as well in the sense that I would have loved to well, see well, any of the buildings. It's interesting projected. for someone who teaches architecture and yes. that the campus architectural mm -hmm. plant is a learning environment Absolutely. for It's a people. playground yeah, for, for architectural is, historians yeah. and it students is, yeah. alike. And you have everybody from Aero Saarinen mm -hmm. to Renwick uh, in their wonderful Gothic library by Alan Collins. So, uh, and John McAndrews Art Library, I should say. And Breuer's so, Ferry House, yeah. and it, the list goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does, yeah. So anyway, is there a programmatic need, I mean, apart from the fact that the old building is leaky and it's too big, a programmatic need for an idea that designing a new chapel will create some kind of community that we've lost. That was exactly yeah. the premise. And since writing this article, I've wondered how true would this really have been? Yeah. Would building something new have really made the community come together? Yeah. Would it have increased the numbers who were attending yeah. any of these various services? I'm not sure. Yeah. This is very often the what modernism was charged with, mm -hmm. the sort of heavy weight of changing, transforming yeah. behavior. Yeah, architecture can build it program. It can, and yeah. I, I know this yeah. for sure. I wouldn't yeah. study what I studied yeah. had I not yeah. been in the, some of the buildings that I, that yeah. I now study um, when I was young. And architecture can transform behavior, but I don't think it always does. Yeah. And so I do wonder there are certain sort yeah. of intractable modes of behavior that you can't actually change. So yeah. I'm not, I don't know if it would have worked or not, but that was the idea. And the chaplain, William Kirkland, saw this very much as the purpose behind wanting to build a new chapel at all was that it should be new, mm -hmm. it should read as new to the students, so uh -huh. maybe uh -huh. to some extent modernist. Uh -huh. But on the other hand, he also wanted to maintain some of the venerable tradition of churchly architecture, uh -huh. even if it wasn't necessarily distinguishably Christian, necessarily. But he did see the, the need for new architecture to yeah. attract students. He didn't think that the style of the old chapel, the one that we all appreciate yeah. today for its historicism, he didn't think that was going to, to do the trick. Yeah, and this isn't something unusual. There are new church buildings going up all over the nation, aren't there, after the all war? All over the place. Uh, yeah. And so this is um, particularly yeah. true. There's a major driver. I mean, I, I talk in the article briefly about an architect, Schwartz, who in Germany is uh -huh. a driver behind the uh -huh. new architecture, modernist churches being constructed uh -huh. in Germany. Of course, uh -huh. in the post-war period, you can yeah. imagine why that was. Yeah, they well, needed to build Cologne churches. Cathedral's flattened, right? Exactly, so, yeah, one so, after yeah. the next. Yeah. And the same, similar things, of course, happen in England with, yeah. we might think of Coventry Cathedral yeah, as a good uh, example. Yeah. And so there's that driver in Europe. And then in the United States, of course, suburbanization is the other driving force behind yeah. modernist architecture being employed for church buildings. So while you do maintain in the centers of important old cities like Chicago, where I'm from, in New York, yeah. you do maintain the old structures, especially from the late 19th, early 20th centuries. But you also build new structures a lot of new, in the new towns. New structures, yeah. Yes. I remember, you know, as a kid going to mass and new churches, and they exactly. were very modern. Yes, all of them, yeah. Uh, and all of this occurring just before, in the case of Catholic architecture, especially occurring just before Vatican II. Yeah. So you also uh, uh, have yeah. this co confrontation with what does tradition mean yeah, in architecture, yeah, just yeah. as what does tradition mean yeah, in liturgy. Yeah, and Vatican II addresses this directly, mm -hmm. doesn't it, uh, with the inter interior of the church. And then architectural records full of church design and this 
period, isn't it? Yes, so, there are yeah. certain issues that are com- entirely devoted or partially devoted to specifically religious architecture, and that it's certainly not limited to Protestant architecture yeah, uh-huh. by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. um, and particularly interesting questions about what modernist Jewish architecture would look uh-huh. like as oh, well. Interesting, yeah. And also, what could modernism do? Is this actually a style that can be... Jewish in the first place, um, can it be an entirely new style of architecture entirely? And then we have examples of building from this period, ecclesiastic buildings of various kinds in Poughkeepsie itself. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been to the Greek church, uh, (laughs) but uh, really wonderful modernist design and so on on Grand Avenue there. So there are multiple possible building solutions to address this issue of community on campus and religion on campus, aren't Mm -hmm. there? And you go into this in a very German way with three parts. (laughs) The syllogism, yes. So on the one hand, of course, you could maintain or retrofit the historicist chapel Uh in a way to make sort of smaller units that could then be broken down and make people feel more like they're coming together when Uh they're in this cavernous space. Ultimately, that's what they end up doing. It's Uh the least expensive option as well. And in a lot of ways, I mean, it preserves the history of the campus, and I do really appreciate that that approach too, although I don't know that's exactly why it happened. On the other hand, there was a more functionalist approach, and that came, those two proposals, there are two schemes that an architect who was the college's consulting architect at the time, Waldron Faulkner, Uh based out of Washington, D.C., he proposed two different options. One of them is very much playing to what the chaplain desired himself. So we have a transept in that case, and it appears especially in plan as if you have a basilica plan, and it has a large transept. Now, in reality, the transept would have been full. The two transept arms would have been full with social spaces, other things that were not actually the central core of the building. It wouldn't have functioned like a transept at all. But the plan looked very traditional. So that was one possibility. One that he actually preferred more was more of a centralized space. It too a bit like a a Romanesque basilica um, in terms of its plan at the very least. We don't have the model any longer, so who knows exactly what this would have looked like. And then the social spaces sort of jutting out off to the side uh-huh. as one arm off of the building. He preferred that one. These never got a lot of traction. And in yeah. fact, as they were proposed to the Buildings and Grounds Committee, this was the moment when Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller, who was the chairperson of the Buildings and Grounds Committee at the time, a trustee and herself an alumna of the college. Yes, well-educated. Very in well-educated our history, in yes, our yeah, history. Yeah. <laughs> and herself a yeah. very influential patron of arts, uh-huh. of the arts and architecture, and particularly of modern architecture. Uh-huh. She's very much the driving force behind various endeavors, especially at the Museum of Modern Art, and much more so than her husband. So uh-huh. while John Rockefeller III is often given credit for this modernist impulse, yeah. if you go to Kaikut, if you see what was um, what Kaikut looked like, uh-huh. and if you see what was added, especially once Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller was on the scene, you can see that she really did have a oh. have an impact. Oh, interesting. Um, and that her own impulses were much more modernist. Yeah, well, do you know what class she was from, by any chance? I uh, believe she was in the class of 1931. 31, okay. So she would have predated then uh, John McAndrew. So. Okay. Uh, yes, yes, yes. But yes, yes. Oh, from right. the period of Tonks mm-hmm. and the uh, all the writing that was done on the Armory show, so she'd have been a vassar when modernism was being debated exactly. by students on campus. And I have to say something that always amazes me when I read these old articles in the miscellany news, how incredible 
incredibly thoughtful and well done they are <laughs> yeah. as critical works. Yes. You know, I could say as opposed to what we read today, <laughs> but I won't. But it was serious thinking that was going on, Absolutely. addressing questions that were sort of national, you know, questions about the role of culture in a democracy. So one was, of the most enjoyable pieces of doing the research for this article was going back through the miscellaneous news, yeah. through the through the Vissarian, through various sources of hearing the voices of students on campus mm. in these periods. They had a lot to say, and I really enjoyed their articulation oh. of these ideas. So does Blanchett then bring in Philip Johnson? She uh, does. Yeah, so, she does. And she pays yeah. to have his uh, proposal presented. So she commissions Philip Johnson to create an alternative proposal, uh-huh. and he does just that. And his plan is far more modern, far more radical uh-huh. than Faulkner's. It is essentially a cube that is has sort of rounded edges, rounded corners, and then inside the building, you have a sort of spherical, almost a vault that is created, uh-huh. a non-structural yeah. vault uh-huh. that comes up that's uh, designed around a sphere. And this is in the center of the building. So you can imagine, you see what the, he's trying to do here through architecture. If there's yeah. any way for architecture to have an impact, a social impact, this is it, I guess he's saying, yeah. is to have this cube, a very centralized building, and the vault that wraps around all of the people within the yeah. chapel. You can imagine that that might actually have an impact on the way people feel when they go inside uh, yeah, this building. Sure. So is there anything that this resembles in some way in your architectural... I mean, well, so what Sophia I, I link or, it to you know, is potentially a crossing vault. To yeah, me, I mean, as a Gothic yeah. architectural historian, okay. I see in this a crossing, crossing vault. vault yeah. I know what um, what Johnson was interested in at this time. It was very influenced by John Summerson's writings about John Soane. Uh-huh. And oh, there is see, in the yeah. Soane, which you can still see in the Soane Museum, yeah. a vault something like this. Yeah. Um, so these are the kinds of influences he has in the back stuff. of his mind. Yeah, the do, um, all of these other sort of utopian uh, architects. I mean, this is, might be off the wall, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Archimedes' circle in the square. You yes. know, uh, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a geometric problem, but in Hagia Sophia, it does seem to be based on it's it. It's true, it too, that a, a yeah, domed yeah, building, yeah, even yeah. though the, the supports are semi-supports, I mean, it does continue all the way down to the ground, so it's not exactly a dome, but you're, you're yeah, right yeah. that it is. it does give that impression, yeah. at yeah. least in the drawings. Beautiful building, and very modern, yes. too. So, yes. so where were they going to site this? I it, mean, they weren't going to just knock the old chapel down here at the that's front of the right. campus. That's right, so the right? idea was yeah. to build this, and um, who knows, they may have replaced the chapel later on, but the plan was not to tear down the chapel and build yeah. this on the same okay. site. So instead, it would have been across from the aula, and I wondered for a long time what on earth that meant, yeah. because I found in a document that it was, quote, supposed to be in the pines in front of the aula. Oh. This suggests that it was on the athletic circle. So yeah. this was before noise was built, yeah. and before the plan, of course, noise was supposed to have two parts and be uh, to create a sort of uh-huh. open circle, yeah, uh-huh. um, but it was before that building was there. And so I do think that the athletic circle and the pines that formed the, the athletic circle, what we now think of as noise circle, that that was supposed to be the site yeah. for this building. So are there plans or elevations showing the building on site? There are two drawings in Avery Architecture and Fine Arts Library at Columbia University, uh-huh. and that was where this all began. Yeah, you're a Columbia product. I'm a Columbia a product, but it's even yeah, before yeah. that. It oh, was yes, when I was yeah. a student ambassador oh, when it? I oh, first oh, saw this okay, drawing. Yeah. And, um, so did I send you off to Avery to do the uh, research? Nick Adams sent oh, me off to okay, Avery. Okay, good, yeah. And this all came to be because the architectural historian Cami McAtee had found this drawing, saw that it had something to do with Vassar, and uh-huh. asked Nick, oh, what on okay, earth is this? And so it led to this discovery. And what Avery has are two drawings that are supposedly associated with Vassar. One of them is an exterior rendering, and that's what appears in this article. 
it's a really beautiful image to me yeah, where you see is, sort yeah. of student life captured mm-hmm. here in a certain way. The pines, you can see the way that the building fits into yeah. the landscape around it, which yeah. of course, as we know, is an important factor for architecture on this campus. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have you know, some students with a bicycle and some yeah. students, they, they seem to be strolling and having the time of their lives. Yeah. And, and I appreciate That's how this. I picture campuses, actually. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so. Yes. Yeah. And so it's a really idyllic picture of campus at that time. So that's one of the drawings that's in Avery. It's a charcoal drawing, a yeah. very beautiful rendering. Mm-hmm. And there would have been an interior. And what I found was that the only thing that survives are, is a photographic version of that that's now in the Getty. So oh, Philip okay. Johnson's papers ended up in the Getty. Uh-huh. And so there's one, it seems to be the presentation drawing that was sent back to him after uh-huh. it wasn't used. Uh-huh. Um, oh, and in that case, we even know who the drafts person was. And it's uh-huh. another remarkable image. Yeah. And the only very funny thing there is it appears that there's a man in that drawing. Uh-huh. And what we learn from the drafts person himself, Helmut Jacobi, is that we know when he rendered Sarah Lawrence College, he was supposed to do the renderings for the campus plan for Sarah Lawrence, he drew in boys all throughout (laughs) in every single rendering he's depicted young men. And later on is when Philip Johnson tells him, didn't I tell you this was a women's college? (laughs) And so it seems possible that he simply didn't know what he was drawing for. Yeah. Yeah. Even with Sarah Lawrence, for Sarah Lawrence used to be a female college. Exactly. So, yeah, no, exactly. Both were, yeah. Both, so, that, yeah this both is the problem. Yeah. So we have yeah. that as, a, as an example. We yeah. know that this kind of mistake occurred in another situation. So what happened to the plan? You know, why didn't the chapel get built? I think the short answer, which I don't actually delve into yeah. in the article, is the decision to build noise instead. Oh, I see. Because this really occurs around the same time, Uh and there are different trustees who have different ideas about what is supposed to be designed Uh at this Uh time. And it seems that's, reading between the lines, it seems like that's ultimately what happened. And So Saarinen wins out over Johnson. In a certain way, yes. And it also means that the trustees who backed both of these architects also are are implicated in this in in major ways. And I do think, on the other hand, if Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller had really wanted this chapel more than anything else, had she put up the money to do it, it's possible it would have happened. But that's not what ultimately occurred. So uh, were there administrators involved? I mean, the chaplains say, must it be? So the chaplain departs around this time as well. So in 1953 is when most of the proposals have been submitted. In 1952 and 1953, the chaplain departs in 1954. And by that point, it really dissolves. Uh There's also, as I mentioned before, there's campus criticism. So there's criticism not only... It's mostly lodged by students. And yeah. the, if the whole idea here is to get students to do something, to change the behavior of students, yeah. uh-huh. if they're loudly proclaiming that this won't work, yeah. and also that it's a terrible idea, if the whole premise of the chapel, because what the president claims, what Sarah Gibson Blanding claims, is that we are in an age of new materialism and yeah. we need to look away from the materialistic uh, impulses uh-huh. of our age and that's yeah. why Vassar women need to go back to chapel. And s- someone writes a withering editorial yeah. saying <laughs> that it is a terrible way to oppose materialism yeah. to design this expensive new <laughs> yeah, space on by, campus. By Philip Johnson, yes. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, um, so it's about the most materialistic yeah, thing you yeah, could do. Yeah, now, yeah. I mean, religious scholars who write about this period also suggest that in the American environment, that's not necessarily, it can't really be said. Yeah, that no. Martin Marty writes about this in particular, oh. that the idea of 
pure materialism versus pure spiritualism, yeah. it gets very muddled yeah, in the American yeah. context that we, for some reason, see building, lavishing money on new buildings as being uh, almost a sign yeah. of spirituality in some cases. Yeah, I wonder if there's a medieval history here. I was thinking this, you know, about so, the same so, yeah. thing. Yeah. I was in my Notre Dame seminar the other day. We were reading the criticism lodged by Peter the Chanter uh-huh. about the construction of Notre Dame of Paris. Oh, uh-huh. And he says the very same thing. Now you can imagine the <laughs> yes. chanter of Paris. Yeah, He's yeah. focused on the liturgy. Yeah, there are yeah, all kinds yeah, of reasons. Yeah. He has a vested interest in the old yeah, structure yeah. staying there so that his life isn't disrupted. But it is true that this kind of criticism has been launched for a very, for very a long, long time. time. Yeah. So, so the building is actually built elsewhere, yes? In a certain way and to, to a certain extent. So yeah. there is, Philip Johnson submits a proposal for a synagogue in Portchester, New York, which uh-huh. is on the border with Greenwich, Connecticut. So yeah. this has led to a little bit of confusion about this project and its genesis, its history. Mm -hmm. He does this, this is a very famous sort of incident in Philip Johnson's life because we know that he held some very repulsive views for a period of time and traveled to Poland during the Nazi period. He is enthralled by German buildings, which is very interesting that in his lectures in the 1950s, what you find is a sort of self-censorship in Johnson's discussion especially of historic architecture where all of a sudden the buildings that he references they're all French Uh and they're all Gothic Uh and in fact if you look through his letters that he was writing in the 1920s to his sister as he's traveling through Europe he's a person who comes from means and he went on his sort of grand tour and everything he's saying to her is about the beauty of Romanesque German German, architecture. Uh And so there's an about face that occurs, and it's it's to save face in a lot of cases. One of the moves that. Well, his friends were abandoning him in their 30s, yes, yes. And one of the moves that he has to make to save face in the post World War II era is to make amends. And one of the ways he does that is to not take a commission Uh to design the synagogue for the congregation KTI in Uh Worcester. And what he designed there is an incredible space. I've visited uh-huh. it a couple of times and really do appreciate what was built there, but the history is extremely complex. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to me that his initial proposal is essentially a recycled project yeah, that taken the buildings that didn't Rockefeller built, you know, yeah, had uh-huh. paid for in yeah. another setting. Uh-huh. So this idea that he didn't take uh-huh. a commission, no, he didn't. And on the yeah. other hand, he was cutting corners in yeah. a certain way. Of course, yeah. this is what architects do. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's difficult. Well, a yeah, difficult I have question. a building. You need a building. I, I was exactly. Like, I'll give you a building. Designed. Yeah, yes. so. oh, very interesting. So you've been to the synagogue in, in Yes, and worked yeah. in their archives. And oh. there were just some really wonderful people, and particularly uh-huh. sort of, even people who were there on the dedication day, I was I was given oh. a tour by someone who had been there at the very beginning oh. when, when the building opened, uh-huh. had her wedding yeah. there, all of these things, yeah. and so it's, I really appreciate that side of this, that uh-huh. we see the community that was able actually to yeah, be built interesting. Yeah, yeah, so, somewhere yeah. else, even if it was for one religion. Yeah. So uh, the synagogue's still in use then, happily. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so well, it, yeah, it never, yeah. what I was describing about the sort of central structure, really all that was retained in the final project or the final plan for KTI was the vestibule, so the entrance vestibule. There's this sort of oval form volume uh-huh. at the front, the cylinder. Uh-huh. And so that's what is maintained. And in fact, he completely changed the, yeah. the interior. Don't, did he? The okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I thought your discussion of your research was very interesting. And I often do ask people on the show yes. to talk about the research process, what libraries you visited, what kind of a trail you followed. So can you talk about that a bit? Uh, so this really began with the first drawing from Avery that uh-huh. I had seen, so the exterior yeah. render 
ordering. And then I knew from the inventory at Avery that there was a second drawing supposedly associated with Vassar. So I thought, okay, well, I need to go down here. So in addition to just seeing the image and digital re reproduction, I also went to Avery. Yeah, so this is an Avery's special collection. Avery's special collection is uh -huh. the uh, drawings and archives yeah, at, uh -huh. at Avery. And really wonderful archivist at that point, also the head there was Janet Parks, who's also uh -huh, a Vassar yeah, alumna, yeah, yeah, uh -huh. and, and um, it was my first sort of real brush with Columbia also, which oh, is a place uh -huh. I then ended up spending the next seven years of my life, <laughs> so I'm very glad that yeah. I had such a wonderful time there. Yeah. It made me realize what a wonderful community yeah. I could find at Columbia. Yeah, great library. It's a wonderful yeah, library, yeah, yeah. and uh -huh. especially the, the archival staff there is, is very sort of supportive. So I saw those two drawings first and wanted to make sense of those, figure mm -hmm. out who maybe made them. Getting the sort of visual impression of them was really important to push me forward in yeah. my research. From there, I then was focused a lot in the not only Vassar Special Collections, but also looking through, as we were discussing earlier, the archives of the Miscellany News uh -huh. and other sources to figure out what was campus life like at that point, uh -huh. why would this have been a need at all. Yeah. And then especially through Dean Rogers and Ron Patkis, I was able to see minutes from the Buildings and Grounds Committee, uh -huh. so to see the sort of back oh, and wow. forth uh -huh. of, among the trustees about what were their priorities uh -huh. at, at that time. And of course, just as someone who's interested in how these decisions get made, it's, uh -huh. it's really interesting and has uh, yes. an impact yeah. later on, of course, yeah, as I no, am no, now on a no, campus no, myself, yeah, and, yeah. and see how these decisions seem to be made from the outside, yeah. and then what maybe goes actually are on yeah, behind yeah. the scenes, and who, who are the players yeah, The left involved. hand doesn't always know what the right this hand is doing. This is true. <laughs> I grew up on a college campus, too, so I've always known that, yes. So where, where did you grow up then? I grew up in Chicago, oh, on the you? University of Chicago Oh, did campus. you? Okay. Yeah. Lots of great architecture lots there. Lots of great so, architecture, yeah. lots of Gothic revival. Yeah, I, yeah. My obsession with Gothic revival uh, and, and with modernism as well. Yeah, so you My got... first job was actually at, the, at Roby House, frankly. Oh, really? Roby oh, wow. Yes. You've got architecture in your blood. In my blood, then, yes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful tours they do there, the Architectural yes. Association. Uh, CAF, in CAF, yeah, in Chicago, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The yeah. boat tours, yes. I can't recommend that, all of that enough. Did you actually go out to the Getty or did you just ask? I did. Oh, you I ultimately did. Yeah. So this, I started this project in 2010, and uh -huh. then I let it go for a very long yeah. time because yeah. I was focusing on yeah. medieval architecture. I was so, doing my coursework at Columbia. Yeah. So you graduated it in 12? In 2010. Oh, in 10. 2010. In 10. Okay. So you, so you just um, started your senior year. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it started as my senior thesis and yeah. took okay. a very yeah. different form um, yeah. in that case. Yeah. And I left, I set it aside, but I still remain very interested in it. I had not answered all of the questions. A lot of the questions that ultimately the article answers, I had not, I had yeah. not figured any of that out by, back then. So it continued to interest me, and I always knew there was something at the Getty. Uh -huh. But I hadn't made, I hadn't been able, I didn't have time or the resources when I was a senior to, to go out to the uh -huh. Getty. I then, later on, several years into graduate school, when I had a bit of freedom, once I was you know, past my oral uh -huh, exams yeah. and all of that, I came back to it, and I, I was just, for my uh -huh. own interest, I was interested in it. And the idea of this book, I, I heard from Anat Geva that she was writing this book, and uh -huh. I submitted uh -huh. a proposal. Uh -huh. So then I realized that I was actually going to publish it in yeah, some form okay. and needed to answer some of these yeah, questions. Uh -huh. That led me out to the Getty. I had a marvelous week at uh -huh, the Getty, uh -huh. reading as much of Johnson's letters and papers that yeah. I possibly could, and then also seeing a series of architectural projects. Uh -huh. So that's where the Philip Johnson piece really came yeah. through, and I, and I understood it all sort of was crystallized in that moment. 
but really a, a few days in the archives there. So I was able to see not only the there were more Vassar renderings, mm-hmm. a plan I found there, and the interior, that's where I finally saw those mm. two elements, as well as other related projects from around the same time. Uh-huh. So St. Michael's Church in Houston, also never built, uh-huh. looks very similar. So uh-huh. it's, he's working oh. in the same, oh, oh, drawing from the very same interesting, yeah. well in a lot of different cases. Yeah. So did you have any chance to talk with Phyllis Lambert while she was here? Because she is a Johnson scholar. It's interesting. Other so luckily, yeah. because I was at Columbia, I often had opportunities to encounter people like that. And so uh-huh. I, I did when she was released her book, Building Seagram, oh, yeah, yeah. I was able to ask her this question oh. because she was here right around the same time. And yeah. I said, did you ever, and I, obviously she knew Philip Johnson. Yeah. And so I asked if she had any recollection of this occurring and she had none. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. So it was, it was interesting, oh, interesting also to know that maybe it wasn't on the student's radar to the degree that I had thought previously yeah, uh-huh. it had been, uh, um, yeah. that it was, it was squashed yeah. well, more easily s- than it might have been. Students, they were writing wonderfully for the miscellaneous news, but they didn't necessarily all read the miscellaneous news. <laughs> That's right, news, too. It was, yes, you know, yes, it was being debated, yeah. So I suppose that, yeah, the general question, I guess, in the end, is there a moral to the story in terms of the way buildings, campus buildings get built or don't get built? A hard question, I know. <laughs> A but, vexed question yeah, these days. A vexed question, um, yeah. Generally, in, in terms of ideally, how should a building get built and what should be avoided when... Uh, we seem to have come to the right decision. It would be nice to have a little Philip Johnson gem on campus, <laughs> yes. but it probably wouldn't be used much more than the large chapel is used for religious or the purposes. Noise. Yeah, if we think yeah. about if it really is a oh, yes, yeah. this or that, no, um, no, you won't, to have this, yeah, this marvelous yeah, ceremony. Yeah. Dormitory is, of course, a, a boon yeah, to the campus. Yeah, it is, yeah. So... Yes, I think looking to the students' needs and to the faculty's needs yeah. is the biggest, that's, I think, the lesson to be learned from yeah. this, uh-huh. is that it should go from, maybe from the, the ground up and, and not the other way around. Uh-huh. That said, I think also the chaplain championing an interest that was important to him, you understand where he's yeah, coming from yeah. in that case, and well, to consider, his, yeah. of course, that's his charge, to consider yeah. spiritual life on campus, uh-huh. so I understand where that was coming from. But the way that it gained so much traction and was able to lead to trustees giving money to famous architects in order yeah, to do yeah. this, it's, it's almost it's sort of surprising, I think, to look back, and yet it could easily happen again. So yeah. I think to, to look to the greatest needs of, of the student body and the faculty, is that's paramount yeah. in all of this. Students know their needs very well. They do, so, yes. And they will tell you uh, yeah, loudly yeah. if you listen to and them. So yes. that is a kind of moral in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can listen to the students about their needs. Yes, so, I yeah. think also the idea of not scrapping what is already there uh-huh. is another yeah. piece of this. So yeah. there's a preservation impulse as well that I get out of it, which is that First of all, deferred maintenance in the chapel was part of what led to this uh-huh. in the first place. Yeah. So that yes, shouldn't that, yeah. and that's of course yes. a, a perennial concern. Yeah, yeah. But then on top of that, how can you rectify that situation once you've identified deferred maintenance as being a problem? Yeah, you well, can still rescue an important, old, yeah. venerable structure on campus. Yeah, deferred maintenance need be a rationale for knocking a building down. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah. And then your larger concern, your larger interest, scholarly interest, is the Middle Ages. And, yes. and right now you're teaching a course on Notre Dame Cathedral. J- just by happenstance. Yes, you know, it, it, it just uh, did work out it, that yeah, way, uh, you know, With the fire, yeah. Coming after you find the class. Right. So we've talked about it a bit, but 
So you're interested in religious life, of course, and religious architecture. Mm -hmm. And there was a great question that was being debated, still is to some extent, about the restoration of Notre Dame after the fire. Mm -hmm. So do you have thoughts about that project and how it's going? Because there was a period where every architect who wanted or was a star architect were offering up plans. uh, And a lot of them didn't look very propitious for the old building. I saw greenhouses, you know, in the rafters, that kind of thing. Yes, so it's difficult for me as a medievalist to think about this question because it reveals that I'm a bit more of a modernist than Uh I might let on. Yes, yeah. In the sense that I think if we were to rebuild Notre Dame in the spirit in Uh which it was first built, meaning in the spirit in which it was built in the 12th century, in the 13th, in the 14th, retrofitted even in the 18th and 19th centuries, If we were to continue that spirit, then we would actually accept one of these proposals. However, Uh I think doing Uh it judiciously would be the way about it. Now, it's not going to happen. There's no chance that this will happen. It does not fit into the sort of system, the structure of the way that restoration occurs in France. There's no chance. I really think there's very, very little chance of that occurring. But I do think, especially getting the projects, the idea that this building has sparked something yes, in uh-huh. people. Yeah, they're is interested. The, the whole nation is interested yes. in the cathedral. Exactly. Yes, and yeah. for different reasons. Uh-huh. I think there are layers of meaning yeah. that this cathedral has acquired yeah. Yeah. Um, over the centuries. And so one person might be interested in it for one reason and another, a different reason yeah. entirely. But I think it's worthwhile considering. What would it look like in a perfect world where we could actually see that happen? Uh What would be the most sensitive, beautiful, modern adaptation of that building? And I think that there could be one. It wouldn't be the dramatic, no, it's not plopping, you know, the Pritzker Pavilion on top yeah. of, of Notre Dame. But yeah, no, there are yeah. other... There, I don't think Frank Gehry would do that yeah, either. No, I, yeah. I, that's the other piece of this, is yeah. that there were some memes appeared that were doing exactly that. But yeah. if Frank Gehry were given the commission, he wouldn't would, do something yeah, no, so interesting, silly. Yeah. The building itself has been built onto many times, of yes, course. I mean, exactly. it has been refurbished, even in the Middle Ages. Yeah, particularly yeah. between the 12th and the 14th. This is what yeah. we're talking about in my yeah. seminar right now. is moving along from one century to the next and you see how dramatically different the 12th century work is from the 14th century and so if you're not a medievalist and if you don't know the language of medieval architecture then it may look like one unified whole that is very old but to a medievalist, it looks eclectic in the way that it, it was before yeah. the fire. And then there are the well. 19th century restorations, which are restorations yes. of a kind, but they're also interventions, great interventions by Villa Odu. And yes, yeah. inventions, and yeah, invention, in, yeah. in, in many cases. So the spire is a great example of that, where yeah. to us it looks for all the world like a 13th century spire, yeah. perhaps. Uh-huh. To Villa Odu, he knew what the original spire looked like. There were drawings, graphic representations uh-huh. of the original spire. For a while, that was more or less what the new spire was going to look like. And at the end, he designed something different. Yeah, uh-huh. So the result was knowingly yeah. an invention yeah. of the 19th century. I found it interesting. I was on a library tour of Parisian libraries mm-hmm. uh, two summers ago. How much material, design material, is saved by the state in their great design libraries. Parisians do keep nice records of, of their built environments. So. And especially if they were made historic monuments. Yeah, and uh, so there's yeah, also oh, the yeah. MAP, which yeah, is oh, an uh-huh. important archive for uh-huh. all of these kinds of interventions. So Villain Le Duc's projects are, are there. You can yeah. see 
most of his drawings from not only Notre Dame, but other, oh. other sites as well. Uh-huh. So uh, I'd like to thank you, Lindsay, for visiting with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your article, Religious Freedom and Architectural Ambition at Vassar College, 1945 to 1954. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks for coming. So.